I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done that. being hired by a company called Carolco Pictures. And that. the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. Or How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. In this episode, more tales from the stage and a shocking admission about Gloria Vanderbilt, plus Maggie Smith's sex pot. We didn't see that on Downton Abbey. And Raquel Welch and bankrolling Broadway. But we begin with Roger's early fascination with the Great White Way. My appreciation of theater was thanks to my parents. My father was a frustrated actor who had left UCLA in his senior year to go to the Pasadena Playhouse and, and spent a year and a half there and always felt that if it hadn't been for something called the Depression, when he had to go work for his uncle, uh, in the fur business, <laughs> he would have had a much better life. But, um, and in fact, seeing both his children ending up in branches of show business was a combination pleasure and jealousy, actually. Uh, Did you ever see him on stage? Oh, yeah. yeah I'll get to that. Okay, okay but sorry. It, it's okay. But my parents started take, took me to musicals. The first one I remember was seeing Ethel Merman and Annie Get Your Gun. And then it was The King and I and South Pacific. Some of these were in road shows that had come to Indianapolis where I was living when I was nine to 12. And, but um, people forget that it was possible you could have seen Yul Brynner in The King and I in Indianapolis. Yes, although that was in the case of The King and I, I arrived one week after we, my parents had gotten tickets from me and my sister, it was, it was my mother, we went to, and, and I remember, I can, t I can show you where in the St. James Theater we sat. I can point to the seats if that's memorable, but Gertrude Lawrence had died like a week before, and she was substituted by a now no longer remembered actress named Constance Carpenter, but The King and I was just a glorious thing to see, and Yul Brynner, and the, I mean, the costumes, the staging, it was a classic musical. I also saw, in Indianapolis in something called the Murat Temple, which still exists today. And it's the place where touring productions go. It was began life as a Shriners Temple and all that exotic Moorish style. And I saw Janice Page, who's South Pacific there. Mm -hmm. But the first serious play I remember seeing was in 19, let's say 54, making me 11. We were in New York and my sister and I had to find a matinee to go see and my parents recommended some piece of silly fluff and we both said, no, no, we want to see Porgy and Bess. And my mother said, well, I'm not sure you will really like that. It's, it's kind of heavy. And I said, no, no, we want to. And we went and again, we had, for some reason, we had box seats up in the thing there. And looking down, I just saw this and it was magical. The guy who played Sporting Life had been in the original production in the 30s, Avon Long, the uh, wonderful uh, deep basso-voiced man named Will William Moorfield. It was, and I just uh, remember at that point thinking this was, this was magic. 
And then I saw my father on the stage and I actually would cue him as he was preparing for the parts. And he, he only did leads, he would never. And this was a community theater, which meant professional director, everybody else is an amateur. Now we're in Indianapolis now? now in or in, we're Indianapolis, in... Uh -huh. Indianapolis. And uh, he played Commander Quig in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Oh, wow. Which my mother said was perfect typecasting. He was both the Lieutenant Commander in the Navy and he's completely paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> but then I also saw him do Sakini in Tea House of the August Moon, which was fairly impressive since he was six foot tall, blonde and blue eyed, but he managed to come off as Japanese. I mean, he really, he had an amazing talent. Who's yeah. a contemporary actor we would know that that maybe you reminded you of your dad? Um, Ralph Bellamy okay. kind of thing of something like that, a sort of, uh -huh. uh, sort of playing a proper, a proper gentleman thing, but, uh, but with a, with a comic flair as well. And you would run lines with him as a kid at home. Yeah, and exactly. Help him learn. That was it was it was fun, and it was also one of the. I learned as a child. I grew up in an era long before parents were totally smitten with their kids and interested in what the kids were interested in. We had to be interested in what they were interested in if you wanted to spend any time with them. And so, becoming interested in the theater was a way of getting closer to my to my father. And my, and my mother was also, a, she was much more the mood, she was the one who instilled the love of movies in me, and I, that's, a, that's a subject for another day, but I had then played Jim Hawkins in Treasure Island, I had played Billy in Bronco Billy, a totally forgotten cowboy thing. My sister was all upset because I got leads and she got walk-on parts. And my mother would say, oh darling, it's just because no boys go out for it and there's 10 girls for every part. So Okay, and this is junior high. No, uh, no, high no, we're, no, we're we're now in sixth and seventh grade. Uh -huh. seventh, yeah, yeah. But when I got to high school, we were now living in Toledo, Ohio, and Toledo had a very fascinating summer theater, which took place in an amphitheater at the zoo, and it had professional directors came in. Ellis Rabb, who was married to Rosemary Harris, was one year. Next year was. Uh, uh, Garson Kanan, Ar maybe? Arthur, Arthur Lithgow, who uh -huh. was uh, John Lithgow's father, who I uh, have an interesting, amusing story about him. And that summer, my father was on the board of the theater, and so my, I got a job as, as ticket taker and my, an, an usher, and my sister was doing something backstage, and we just loved it. We also got to know the whole cast of, of actors who were, you know, struggling young actors, one or two of uh, went on to some some fame and fortune, but uh, and this is a stock company a stock, that would they do put, different shows yes, yeah. every two weeks or every. It, it was repertory. I mean, it was literally one thing was from Monday to Wednesday, and then another play was Thursday to Saturday. I mean, it was really quite uh, extraordinary. And I remember, and only the directors were the big names, and they would direct this stock. Yes, company. they would direct the stock company. One of whom we got to know very well, and this is something that may get edited out, but he. I got to know him well because he had an affair with my mother. Um, and that's Wyatt Cooper, father of Anderson Cooper, who subsequently married Gloria Vanderbilt. And, oh, that's staying in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and that's staying in. And when I t recently, I was having dinner with friends whose son had produced the Gloria Vanderbilt, Anderson Cooper thing for HBO, I think it was. And I they had invited me to the... Uh, a, a premiere thing and I couldn't go. And afterwards I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm really looking forward 
to meeting Anderson Cooper because I want to say, your father had an affair with my mother. And this woman looked shocked and she said, oh, I, I hope you wouldn't say that. Anderson thinks very highly of his late father. I said, my mother was not chopped liver. <laughs> I said, I think very highly of her and, and so did Wyatt. And I think- For a while. Right, for a while until greener pastures beckoned. But I also, I think there was some question as to which team Wyatt batted for. So any, ah. anything that, that burnished his heterosexual credentials, I think Anderson would appreciate. So Now wait, to, let's stop here for a second. Did that, did that break up your parents' marriage? Or oh, was this a, was a discreet affair at the time? Sufficiently indiscreet that I knew about it. You know, they had, they had their days free, the actors. So they would, they would, my mother would take them swimming at our club and things like that. And I, I, I got the picture. I see. And, um, and your dad was in some of those productions? Because he was on the board of the theater? He, no, he or? wasn't. No, that was in Indianapolis where it was in community theater. This uh -huh. was fully professional actors' equity. And, uh, and I can tell you, I, the plays that summer, two summers, it really was, it was Pygmalion, Shaw's play, which they advertised as My Fair Lady Without the Music, <laughs> and to make it popular. <laughs> uh, the, the wonderful Irish play, The Playboy of the Western World. Uh, Shaw's Devil's Disciple, several, several Shakespeare plays. Um, and, uh, but the, the cast would come back after performances to our house and play poker till two in the morning. And I would, would be looking on this and just, you know, thinking, this is the life, you know, this is not, I never ever thought of being an actor because I knew that required something I didn't have called talent. I, but I but I was intrigued by it. It reminds me of the movie My Favorite Year. Yes. About the yes. behind the scenes at that right. big radio TV show. Sure, and that wonderful young, what happened to that young actor? I don't know, Marklin Baker. I don't yes, know what happened disappeared. to him. Yeah, uh, yeah. But great Peter O'Toole performance and a, yeah. and a life that seems very similar to yours in a way. The um, the Marklin Baker. Yeah, 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 being, yeah. Being in the outskirts of everything. Right, but but looking looking on with fascination. And even though we lived at this for my four years of high school in Toledo, Ohio, my father worked for Macy's, and we would come into New York twice a year for a week or ten days. And going to theater and restaurants was what we did. And I remember seeing the Three Penny Opera with with uh, Lottie Lenya down in the Village. Uh, when it cost three pennies. Something like that. Well, the music man, I remember, I, a week from tonight, I'm taking my wife for her birthday to see Hugh Jackman in The Music Man. And not that I remember it. Well, I remember, I remember the, the movie more than probably I remember seeing the play, which I saw by purchasing the only thing I could afford, which was a standing room. In those days, they still had allowed people to pay a half price and stand in the rear. And that's when I saw it. Do you Rock remember how much that was? Oh, it was probably well. I know that at that time the top ticket was nine ninety. Nine ninety was the orchestra seat. Wow. That I, 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 the, I and would I, Robert Preston have been Robert in that? Robert Preston. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And and the wonderful uh, uh, soprano cook uh, Barbara Cook oh. was uh, the oh. Marion the librarian. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know whether. And you got in for your standby ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then, but also. And I can remember exactly, as I thought of this recently with the release of the Steven Spielberg movie of West Side Story, going to see it by myself, uh, I don't know, uh, a matinee at the Winter Garden Theater, which is where I'll see Hugh Jackman in a week, <laughs> and sitting in the balcony, 
they didn't they they hadn't renamed it the mezzanine yet uh, and uh, i uh, uh, had been trying to tout it off of it by my mother who said, well, you know, it's a lot of dancing. You don't like dancing that much. And I said, well, now I hear the songs are great or something. And it was a rapturous experience. I mean, it was remembered very, very well. And I also saw it was a revival of Carousel. It wasn't the original uh, production. Um, and then I actually went very in, very deep into serious, serious evening at theater, seeing Jason Robards in Long Day's Journey into Night down in the village. And that's like four hours. It's interesting that it's on Broadway right now in a trimmed down two hour version, which everyone says is not that great. And I remember meeting Jason Robards 30 years later, something like that, and telling him that I'd seen him in that. And he said, oh, no, that's not possible. You're too young. I said, no, nope, it's possible. I was 16 when I saw you, but I promise you it was a, at the theater and the circle in the square. Was Sheridan there an square. age limit then? I mean, would they say no one under 12 would be, you know, could get into this or 50? You don't you don't remember? I, I, mean, I don't remember, but I don't I think um, I'm trying to think when age limits affected something. Maybe hair, maybe when when. Oh, well, uh, no. Oh, Calcutta. Oh, Calcutta. Stuff, yeah, oh. stuff like that. Oh, Calcutta, I dated one of the cast members. Yes, we right. I remember that. <laughs> um, but at this point, now I go off to Harvard at, at age 17, and they have just opened the, this wonderful student main theater called the Loeb Drama Center, which is still a main important theater in Boston and Cambridge today. And there I saw all the classics that student productions of, of Bertolt Brecht and, and Chekhov and, and uh, Ibsen and those were sort of pretentious young undergraduates like that stuff and I enjoyed it too. But they also discovered that Boston was where in those days there were pre-Broadway tryouts of plays that later came to Broadway and were easier and cheaper to get seats in the balcony. And I think it was when the first month of my going to college that I saw a pre-Broadway run of Camelot, which uh, with Richard Burton and uh, I forget who the woman was. Um, and it was, you know, I didn't love it, but it was okay. <laughs> um, but the term band in Boston came from things opening things, there first. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, opening there first and they had a very kind of strict Puritan moral code. They had an actual censor who, who would decide whether the play could be seen or not. Right. Uh, so we, we just mentioned O Calcutta, for example, or yeah, Hair. Right. And that would be something that have, after having a Broadway run couldn't probably come to Boston. That would be banned in Boston. Right. It was. Yeah. There might have been all, as much a commercial decision that there right. wouldn't be an audience okay. for it because, my God, it was too racy. But <laughs> I also saw three or four times in between Boston tryout and then later in New York, this would be my senior year in college, The Lion in Winter. And because I had known Rosemary Harris, who was starring op opposite Robert Preston in it, uh, I got to go back from my days in Toledo when she was in the company. And I got to go back and, and I saw it three times and just absolutely loved that play. I also went to, I'm going to be, I, well, it was the opening week of The Odd Couple. Huh. And it was one of the great things about seeing movies and plays where you know nothing about them is 
then you get a, the revelation of something being fantastic. Once you're involved in the business, by the time you see something, you've heard about the 12 problems they have in the third act and the this and the that and so forth. So you're, you don't get the sense of discovery. Um, I had that later to a stunning degree with Angels in America when I went to see it because I've had a subscription in LA to the Mark Taper. And so I just saw it and, and regarded it as probably the, the greatest American play of, of the almost 21st century, not quite late 90s. Um, I didn't have, I don't want to pretend that I had great, totally great taste because I fell in love with a musical in about 65, 66, that was just before I graduated, called A Time for Singing. And it was a musical based on how green was my valley, a Welsh thing. And I called everybody I knew in New York and I said, you've got to see this. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, the critics did not exactly agree and it closed in one week. And a lot of people said, well, I'm glad I didn't waste my money listening to you, Smith. Uh, in any case, I then went, I mean, once I moved to New York and was living there, and then even though I was earning a very modest salary at my first job on Wall Street, I was, there was enough to afford a, a balcony, even occasional orchestra seats. And it became a regular Roger Smith kind of a thing. Oh, I, I would say I probably saw a play a week. And before TKTS, the thing right. where you could line up and get yeah, a half-price right. ticket, it was standing room only or what they called rush seats Rush, yes, you'd get, you get to go there at the last minute. Or if you go sometimes, I would go at, at 10 minutes before curtain and there'd be somebody trying to get rid of a single or a pair and something and you'd, you'd buy it for, for less than the full price. Uh, and in that, the plays that I most remember being just astounded by in that were Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And it's, it was his first play on Broadway. I don't know if it was his first play he ever wrote. But it began, for me, a, a lifelong love affair with Tom Stoppard's writing. And it culminates in a, a story I'll, I'll get to it a little bit. Maggie Smith was in his Something the Night or the... Uh, I'll have to look it up. I'll, if it's important to the story, right, I'll add okay, it. But no, I saw right. her in uh, Do It at Kennedy Center. And she had a double that walked out, She it looked like she was naked right? because she'd stripped in front of this tree right. and walked behind it. And when she came out, she was fully clothed. So you realized you'd been duped. For, right. you, didn't see the, right. you didn't see the derriere of Maggie. <laughs> well, Maggie Smith, it's very hard for people who know her only from Downton Abbey to know yeah. that she was a sex pot. She was a gorgeous, redheaded, uh, very, very sexy out there person. And the first time I ever went to London, which was Christmas of 63, and I saw probably one of the most amazing evenings in the theater, something called Oh, What a Lovely War, which was a musical created by a great theater person, Joan Littlewood, in a little theater across the river and sort of the London version of Off-Broadway. And it was all songs from World War II done in a style that's become very commonplace now, but mixed media. There would be films behind them. There would be uh, text going across in, in lighted letters. And uh, you'd be seeing, they'd be singing these, you know, oh, what a lovely war. And then you'd see 1.2 million people died in right. the Battle of the Somme. Uh, but Maggie Smith came out in, as, a, as a tart and sang a song about how she was willing 
for a shilling to make a man of any one of you. <laughs> uh, you don't forget something like that. So, and the other one that made such a stunning impression on me was the great British director Peter Brook's production of Marat Saad. You were in an insane asylum, and it was it was breaking barriers that were considered shocking. I'm going to guess this was around 1970, something like that. But I had, you know, maintained this strictly amateur devotee attachment to theater and never actually seriously thought of having any kind of professional involvement. But by the late 1970s, due to my having been uh, involved, as I discussed uh, earlier time, with the philanthropy at Warner of giving money to arts organizations, including theater organizations. And this brought me to the attention of the amazing woman named Isabel Stevenson, who was the head of the American Theater Wing, which is the people who put on the Tonys. And she was one of those theater lovers. She was a very grand lady. And she asked if I would go on the board, which I knew exactly what that meant. We hope to get money out of Warner by putting you on the board. I was flattered and took, accepted it. And it was an interesting board of, of old theater pros, Joe Sullivan, uh, people who had you know, been, been around the theater for years. But I had also joined at the same time the board of something called the National Corporate Theater Fund. At that time, in the 70s and early 80s, the real red-hot center of creative theater was regional theaters. Broadway wasn't a place where the things started. It was where they, they got to. And this Like being across the Thames in London. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, that, was even, that was more, as I say, closer to off-Broadway. This is uh, more like the Birmingham rep would be in England, et cetera, the regions. And uh, this organization, which I ended up going from being a board member to, for about a year and a half, the chairman of the board, when the, when the distinguished and far more qualified head of the board had to step down for some reason. But it raised money for what were then considered the six best theater, regional theaters in America. The ACT, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, the Tyrone Guthrie in Minneapolis, the Actors Theater of Louisville, the Arena Stage in, in Washington, D.C., the Goodman in Chicago, and Yale Rep in New Haven. And as Williamstown, a, not on the list, huh? No, wasn't it? it I don't know. There not were some interesting differences, uh -huh. things and others. And I think it wasn't as prominent then as it Boy, was. Boy, Arena now. has given us some. And did you say Goodman in Chicago? Goodman or who in was Chicago. In, yeah. Yeah. Those two have given us unbelievable uh, performers. Well, part of my duties was to fly to these cities, go attend a, a, a opening night usually and meet everybody. And then everybody would be very nice to me because I was supposedly a potential source of checks. It wasn't my sterling personality. But I saw some amazing productions as a result of this that normally I wouldn't see living in New York one of which I remember in, at the Goodman in Chicago, get this, Elaine May and Peter Falk doing a one-act play in which she is a highly neurotic woman on the verge of suicide who's calling into the suicide prevention hotline, and Peter Falk is the on his first day on the job at the hotline having to counsel her. You can imagine the, the humorous uh, tent Did potential. Mamet write that? 
No, it sounds like it should be. I don't. I, and I know Mamet was involved in the Goodman Theater. Yes. You know what? You raise an interesting question. It may well have been. I, I don't know. I've heard. It. I've but, heard of that play, and and you saw it. Yeah. Well, when I got seriously involved with with Broadway later, I said, "Why doesn't somebody bring it?" And they said, "Roger, you can never do two one act plays on Broadway." I said, "Why?" Because the critics will always tell you that one's better than the other. Right. And that ruins the box office. No one wants to go see one good play. They want to. They, they never say both are great. That never happens. So yeah. this is the practical lessons you learn about the the way the the finances and economics of the theater work. But I also had a chance to become close to a wonderful man, Robert Brustein, who had uh, uh, been involved in theater for years in one way. But he was heading up what became the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge. And he um, built it into a, a, an amazingly important place for both pre-Broadway tryouts, uh, which I later you brought up, was involved with the production of a uh, Jules Pfeiffer play that that opened there that uh, died very uh, quickly. And he came up. We came for the the opening performance, and uh, uh, I I had actually known his was very close to his ex-wife. They were not. It was not a happy parting, so that that wasn't a good introduction. But he 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 struck he struck me as odd. I mean, maybe in the way that you would imagine that Jules Pfeiffer might be odd, but rather you know amu amusingly self-involved, is how I'd put it. How um, important do you think regional theater is today to Broadway? I don't think it works quite the same way because they have subscriptions at regional theaters, which is how they stay alive, but they're afraid to take a chance on an unknown play unless it's by a known author, so that it is less likely to be a, a proving ground. But there's still, no, things, things come from very, very small theaters, not even big major regional theaters that make it to Broadway. They have nothing, virtually nothing starts on Broadway First, you'd have to have the most incredible credentials. Seinfeld, of, yeah, yeah, Springsteen, right? Those sort of things, right. yes. But right. other than that, it's got to go try. It's, it's got to get it wrong somewhere. Somewhere, first. exactly. Yeah. Um, and the only time I was involved in an out-of-town tryout, which was the classic scene from every movie of there's the play's in trouble. Everybody's been brought in, and, and they, they that were, you had money in, or that you'd represented in 250, some way. Two hundred and fifty thousand of Warner's dollars was in this play, and it was called My One and Only, which was a pastiche musical of Gershwin songs, and two very talented people, one of whom died a number of years ago, named Tim Mayer, who I had known at Harvard was partners with Peter Sellers, not that Peter Sellers, the- The, the, the Washington, D.C. Art, art, art The director of the DC, of Kennedy of the, Center for of the a Kennedy while. Center, yeah. a very brilliant guy. They decided they weren't gonna just do a standard 30s book musical re redo of a, of, a, of a Gershwin musical. It was based on an existing uh, musical, but with various Gershwin songs added to it. And they wanted to make it more artistic. Well, the critics had panned it in Boston, and all of the people who had money in it, the Francine Lefrac was the lead producer. We were summoned to Boston to sit there and, and talk about what was wrong. And they came up with the idea of asking Mike Nichols to come in as a play doctor. 
Now, Mike Nichols does that, but he doesn't come cheap. Mm-hmm. And he was hired for $25,000 a week for as long as the play ran. It ended up running for two years. And I would say for about two or three weeks' work, he got paid $25,000 a week for two years. <laughs> so. And I clashed with Mr. Nichols. That was a lot of money then. That was a we lot of money a, then. It was, it was, I mean, we've not, talked about script doctors like right. Carrie Fisher making yeah, right. 150 grand a week for a week, week or two not, weeks But not of for work. two years. And <laughs> two years at 25,000 during yeah. that time was well, a I nice strangely, little stipend. I strangely had had prior dealings with Mike Nichols because through a friend, I had advised him financially on some things. And I discovered something about Mr. Nichols. He loves money. He is deeply, was, I should say, devoted to money. And in fact, when I got, when an investment that I'd put him in, a tax shelter in oil and gas didn't work out, he summoned me to his suite at the Carlisle to explain what went wrong. And I thought, Mike Nichols is wasting his time. He doesn't have somebody to do this for him, but okay. And I said, well, Mr. Nichols, it's called a tax shelter. So the minute you put your money in, you saved an equal amount in taxes. So you had no exposure. He said, well, still, it didn't work out. I said, there's no guarantee. It's not that how it works. If it works out, that's even better. But you're, you were in the clear from the beginning. But he was very interested in that, and I found that odd. But when we were in Boston, what was emerging was there was a clash between the commercial group and the art group. But the art group included- What a surprise. Yeah, right. A, a friend, this friend of mine, Tim Mayer, who had written the book, he ended up actually getting a Tony Award for the book, even though it was heavily rewritten by Peter Stone, who had been brought in, who was a major uh, Broadway playwright. And at one point, and I'm arguing for not doing any, because it, under Broadway contracts, the Broadway writer is king. Nobody can change a word of his without his permission under the, it's the... Uh, Actors' equity or the... Well, there's a screenwriters and a script, uh, writers' guild of uh-huh. a version of her for Broadway. And Mr. Mayer and Mr. Sellers were very unhappy with the way they were pushing it to be much more of a come on, get happy, classic, old-fashioned musical and losing their sort of darker take. The only leverage I had was $250,000, which I said, look, I don't want to have us be part of pushing these people aside and making them unhappy and disclaiming any, any involvement with this ultimate production. At which point, Mike Nichols takes me aside and says, Roger, this is not about art. This is about commerce. Get real. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'm not, put, I'm not putting my judgment down. That was his $25,000 contribution that week. Yeah, right, exactly. Could shut me up, <laughs> which wasn't that difficult because I just said, look, I shouldn't, wouldn't dream of imposing my opinion on, on you, Mike, or the, uh, uh, the director was Tommy Toon, who was, uh, uh, the star, as well as the star. Twiggy was in that Twiggy too, was in that. Time, oh, yeah, right? yeah. And I ended up taking Warner's money out. I said, I don't think we should participate in this. And when it went on to run for two years to sold out audiences, once again, my 
whatever, however good Antenna. my artistic judgment was, my commercial judgment was deeply flawed. I never. I, I think I saw Tommy Tune and Twiggy in that in uh, at the Kennedy Center. I think I saw it in Washington D.C. Well, there was two. There, about ten years later, there was another one called. Um, not my one and only. Not my one and only, with a, di a different title uh, uh, that was a, also a Gershwin musical. Two for the, the yeah. I, I can think. You know, of it's that. funny. We've talked about uh, the late Peter Bogdanovich, and I I just uh, saw in Graydon Carter's airmail uh, recently that he was working on a Gershwin project when he died about the brothers. About oh yes uh, oh well uh, oh you mean about. About, he wanted to do a I, film about, about Ira and, Ira and, and yeah, George. Yeah, and their, and their relationship with, um, is it Sam Levine? Who was the funny Sam psych, Levine, yeah. Sam Levine, the yeah. sorry, wisecracking. Right, yeah. Who actually played himself in a, in a Gershwin right. movie. Right. And it was very far along when he passed. Well, who became very involved because he, Michael Feinstein's entire career has its origins in going to work as a man of all things for Ira Gershwin, who was then living in the Pacific Palisades in a beautiful house that I was in, not because I knew Ira Gershwin, but people who bought it from him. I, we were friends of mine, a gorgeous house. And they worked on a, then aborted partly uh, due to uh, creative differences. The Gershwins had a sister. They went Francis something, mm. but it wasn't Gershwin. And, and, and she had to be consulted, and they couldn't work the thing out. The usual, the usual show business backstage nonsense. Michigas. Michigas. Musical Michigas. <laughs> All led up to my getting appointed in 1980 as head of Warner Theater Productions. And I, the original idea of that was to make plays into movies, not movies yes, into plays. Exactly. Right? We were to find plays that had the potential of becoming movies with the view that Warner Brothers would then make the movie version. And the productions I was most involved with, there was The Dresser, which was an English thing, the 5th of July starring Christopher Reeve, uh, before his terrible accident, of course, duet for one with Anne Bancroft, um, musical called March of the Falsettos. And the one that I, I had loved most of all was called Beyond Therapy, which was written by young Chris Durang um, and had been done at the Phoenix Theater under a playwriting grant that I'd created at the foundation where, I, it's hard to believe it this, these days, but for $5,000, I got Wendy Wasserstein, Chris Durang, Linus Linney. I mean, the, the hottest young playwrights of the day were thrilled to get $5,000 to, to write a script, because in theater, you write first and then you get paid, maybe, if it, if it goes into production. So this, and... So you saw the, the fruit of your of think, con yes, contribution yes, that, right. how many years earlier that... that this was, became, I had done that, I'd done that in the, in the late, in the mid-late 70s. Well, that must have been thrilling. It was, it was great because, you know, you were feeling that you had, I was using the power of Warner's checkbook to force my way into areas that normally people would say, go peddle your papers somewhere else. I mean, this came up with, with involvement with the great Hal Prince. And I had gone to Steve Ross and said, I don't think investing in plays is a business. And we have to justify this to 
the shareholders and so forth. I said, what I think is a business is something we could create. That This was the, the low point of Broadway, the early 80s. The theaters were, half of them were empty. There was, it was when people didn't want to go anywhere near 42nd Street, right. etc. It was scary as hell. I said, we could take a long-term lease on one of the big theaters, the Gershwin, the Minskoff, the ones that no serious play wanted to go in because they were like on large barns that weren't good for productions, but perfect for musicals. And I said, I said, I hate seeing this thing where they call, we've done a revival of such and such. The Metropolitan Opera doesn't say we're doing a revival of Rigoletto. They just make the production, they stick it in mothballs, and then three years later they bring it back. We should create something called the American Musical Theater, and it will start with the first real American great musical showboat. It will end with the last great American musical, Gypsy, because anything after that inferior. And we will just have it like the Metropolitan Opera, where you, on any given night, you'll know for tourists, we'll run it so that tourists from out of town for one week can see two productions in a week, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And fine, Steve Ross very wisely says, well, we need two key people, the creative head and the business head. And the year now is about when? I'm going to go with 81. Okay. 81. And I said, well, the business head I've got, that's Bernard Gersten, who had been number two to Joe Papp at the Public Theater mm. and had not yet made his long-term alliance with Lincoln Center, which, where he's been the, was the business manager for 20 years. And just a, a lovely guy. And I said, now the creative thing is, um, why don't we aim big? Why don't we see if Hal Prince wants to do it? Because that's the, the, the name on Broadway. So, And he would oversee. He wouldn't direct every oh, production. Oh, no, he would oversee. He would be the, yeah. the I think, the, the masthead, the, 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 the dramaturg, the person uh -huh. who decides which things you do and with what cat. Uh -huh. He would be a, a classic producer. He'd program it. Yeah. Like 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 he did for little things like the uh, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, Steve said, "Roger, it's a great idea. Set up a meeting with Hal Prince." So I said, "Okay." And I get a call from his secretary about two days before the meeting. He said, "Oh, Steve wants to know where Hal's office is." I said, well, "It's in the Simon and Schuster building." I said, "What does he care?" Steve never went to someone else. Other people came to him. He said, "Oh." Mr. Ross goes to Hal Prince. And that was an example of the man's wonderful sense of appreciation and awe for creative talent. Uh, he would, and creating his own right. theater. Right? Yeah, he, would, he wouldn't, a mere business, Charlie Bluthorn he wouldn't go see, but, but Hal Prince he would. You're coming to my stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we go over to this office, and Steve is at his most charming. He says, look, Hal, normally, you know, we have to come up with a name for this over umbrella organization. Normally, I would suggest that your name should go first. But Prince Warner sounds odd. I think Warner Prince is a little better. He agreed. He laughed. And it was kind of set up that we were going to put in $12 million as seed money that would then, in theory, never need another nickel of investment and get 8, 10, 12 mm -hmm. musicals going. 
And, and the theater is which one now? Well, it was it, the theater. We didn't be, know. But we didn't know, but it was know, but it, probably going to be something called the Minskoff, which is on Broadway, and it's a it's a big it's in a it's in a hotel it's in a Marriott hotel now, um, and. Uh, I, I, but nothing that that Disney ended up buying or rehabbing or any of those. No, no, they they did some very smart things with the Forty Second Street old properties that were in total disarray. Anyway, it was all very exciting until nineteen December of nineteen eighty two, and the collapse of Atari meant that we had no more money for outside ventures outside our basic businesses. All of a sudden we went from rolling in money to being, So but you hadn't started remodeling a theater or No, we no what I we But Hal Prince had started thinking about what was going to open and who was right. going to get and Well, what. I again with my classic pushiness, I had this taken on myself because I think the only way this would work was if we could get around the unions. Because it was we said this is everyone in Broadway is grossly overpaid because the theory is they're going to be working 10 weeks a year, 15 weeks a year, maybe 20 if they're lucky. I said, we're going to give them a 40. But you had full-time jobs. We're going to give them a 48-week contract with four weeks. And Hal was for that? He was going to sort of go against oh, yeah. the union? Well, no, we, we had to get the union's permission. Right, you were going but, to negotiate right. with but the they, But let me tell you, they, they're... Their actors weren't working, the theaters weren't filled, and, and uh, it was uh, a hail, not a hail mary play. It looked like a, a real uh, right. uh, a winner. Hail a winner. yes, yes, <laughs> hell yes, exactly. And so the idea, and I just could see, you know, we did the, the, the great re reproductions of, of all the classic musicals, and so that was the concept. I ended up meeting with the head of Actors Equity. Who at first was no 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 we're not. I said, look, this will not work if you think you're going to get your regular weekly pay. I said you're going to get maybe two thirds of it, but you're going to get guaranteed 48 weeks a year you get vacation. And uh, he ended up, Alan Eisenman was his name, ended up going along with that idea. So we had that in place. And then, as I say, the X factor of the collapse of Atari's video game business uh, changed the. Uh, our situation in terms of speculative new ventures. And as, as much as I was convinced this was going to work, it was, of course, speculative. And that was the end of that? That was the end of that, yeah. It's never been done, and it's still, it's still an idea that somebody with a half a brain, and, and now it's not $10 million, now it'd probably be 50 to launch it, maybe more, because uh, right now people, 10 million is the price of an ordinary musical. Roger Smith has found a man with half a brain to help him put this together. <laughs> I'm Bill McCuddy, and this is Who the is Roger Smith? If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one -on -one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different
type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid.